0: Earlier this year, our sponsor
1: Wahoo Fitness
0: did a huge giveaway here on the podcast. We caught up with Jen Matro, who won the Element Bolt bike computer. Jen, it's been a few months since you won our Wahoo Fitness sweepstakes. How has life been since you became a Wahooligan? Alyssa, is it weird to say that I love my bike computer? The Element Bolt does it all. I can see any metric I need, power, distance, cadence, but I have to say that my absolute favorite feature is how you can enter a destination into the phone app and it will instantly create a route to guide you there with the Bolt. I used that a lot in Nice when I was there for the 70.3 World Championships.
2: Thanks, Jen. We love hearing your feedback. If any of our listeners want to give the bike trainers, bike computers, and heart rate monitors that make up the Wahoo Fitness ecosystem of products a try, head to wahoofitness.com. Okay, Alyssa, imagine you're stranded on a deserted island and you have to pick one thing to drink for the rest of your life. What would you choose? Haley, I think I'd have to go with
0: Noon Sport Watermelon Flavor.
2: Nice choice. Personally, I'd opt for the Noon Endurance Lemon Lime Flavor because in my deserted island fantasy, I'm still getting in regular 90 minute workouts. That sounds
0: totally reasonable. The good news is that all Noon Hydration products are made with clean, quality ingredients that are good for your body and the planet.
2: So if you ever find yourself on a deserted island, or maybe just in the middle of a really long training day, you'll be thankful that Iron Women podcast listeners get 30% off all Noon Hydration purchases by using the code IRONWOMEN at NoonLife.com.
1: And now, the ladies you've been waiting for... Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. Bye for now.
2: Hey, Iron Women podcast listeners, this is Haley, and I am flying solo hosting the show this week. But do not worry, before my co-host Alyssa went off the grid, we managed to record a fantastic interview with Australian professional triathlete Renee Kiley, so we'll have that coming up for you in just a few minutes. But first, if you are wondering where Alyssa is this week, if you are listening to this on release day, which is Thursday, November 7th. Alyssa should be on day five of six at the trans Pecus Ultra running stage race in Southwest Texas. The race started last Sunday with a six-mile prologue, which was followed by four days of running a marathon each day. And on the final day, Friday, which was tomorrow, Alyssa should be running a 56-mile finale to finish, which gets her to around 166 total miles run. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you probably know that running 166 miles in six days isn't really new for Alyssa. Last year, she ran the 273 miles of the Vermont Long Trail in just over five days, But there are a few things that make the Trans-Pecos Ultra a bit different. First, the race is self-supported. So Alyssa has to carry her own pack with all of her food, a sleeping bag, and any luxury items like extra clothes or her Zelios Sun Barrier sunscreen. She has to carry that the entire race, which is one reason why my good friend Betty Janelle has dubbed Alyssa's race as the heavy backpack race. The race organizers do provide tents and drinking water, which I can imagine is super helpful when you're running through the desert. You are, you know, imagine you get thirsty. So it's nice that they provide that. And second, this is a race. It has a $10,000 prize purse on the line that's split equally between men and women. So I can only imagine that the competition out there in the desert is fierce. So in full disclosure, I'm recording this intro on Tuesday and just before I hit record, I did check the Trans Pecos Ultra website and Facebook page because the athletes are supposed to have GPS trackers so you can follow their their progress. But to be perfectly honest, I can't really tell um, what place Alyssa is running in right now as as the race is going on, but I can see that she finished Monday, which was the first competitive day, a 26.2 mile um, stage, as the first woman, and I believe second place overall. So hopefully she can keep it coming And we definitely want all of you to tune in next week when Alyssa will be back on the show and ready to tell us the full story of her 166 mile self-supported race, the heavy backpack race through the Chihuahuan Desert in Southwest Texas. So definitely, if you have questions, definitely uh, send them in for, for Alyssa. Our, our mailbag is ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. And like I said, Alyssa will be back next week and ready to answer all of your questions and some of mine because we know that I have some questions because I'm, I'm just trying to fathom how how this race works. It's It's a little beyond me, but great for Alyssa. So while Alyssa has been running through southwest Texas, I have been logging the miles in the snow here in Bozeman. Last week, I talked a little bit more about my plans to run the California International Marathon in December. And with Alyssa out this week, I'm, I, I mentioned the mailbag earlier, but I'm not going to answer any mailbag questions that we have. I'll save those for when she comes back. But if you have any questions about my, my marathon training, in addition to Alyssa's race or anything else running related, triathlon related, fitness related, please feel free to send them our way. Again, our dedicated mailbag email address is ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. I will say that probably the most common question I've had recently is how is marathon training going? And If I'm 100% honest, if I have to answer that question right now, the last couple days have been pretty rough. Um, Not necessarily running related, more life related, but as we all know, life stress and exercise stress are pretty much the same thing. So last Thursday, actually on, on Halloween, Um, I was on the phone with one of my coached athletes as she was getting ready for Ironman Florida. And we were kind of just going over some last minute race prep. And I looked over into my living room and I, I thought I saw a leaf on the floor. And I thought that was really weird because I had just vacuumed. So I walked over to pick it up and the leaf moved. And as you could probably guess, this leaf was, was not a leaf. And as I watched it run behind one of my house plants, I realized that the leaf was actually a mouse. So we are talking a mouse inside my house. That is my worst nightmare. So if you, if you've listened to this podcast long enough, or if you know me in person, I'm, I'm a little bit of a, a drama queen, I guess. I overreact a little bit, especially when it comes to insects and rodents. I, I get afraid. So my pre-race conversation with my athlete kind of went something like this where it was like, hey, let's make sure we pace the first mile. Let yourself settle in. Don't get carried away. And then I like let out the most blood curdling scream that I'm pretty sure she thought I was being murdered, or that like if there was a mouse that it was Chuck E. Cheese with a machete <laughs> because it was it was a little overly dramatic, but um, that was my reaction. So poor poor Tiencia, my athlete, she she had to handle me hanging up on her, telling her what was going on, and then we we finished our call later, but. I um I actually called my mom and an exterminator after I got off the phone with with my athlete. And I can see where calling my mom might seem a bit childish. I am a millennial, so I, I and I wear that badge with pride. My mom is my best friend. But she also grew up on a farm in eastern Washington. And as a kid, she earned 10 cents for every mouse she trapped. So while unfortunately I must have inherited some distant relative's irrational fear of everything rather than my my mother's courageous entrepreneurial spirit. But my mom did come over and help me get the mouse out of my house. And then the next day, Heather, the exterminator or, or pest control, might be the more PC way to describe um, people who help you with these kind of situations. She showed up and and Heather was this like, 20-something-year-old woman who is so badass, I just watched in awe as she hunted for more mice, and all she was carrying around was, like, the flashlight from her iPhone and some steel wool to plug the holes, and she's, like, crawling through my, you know, my crawl space underneath my condo where I'm afraid to, like, even put my head into the hole, and she's, like, no big deal, and, um, It was, it was impressive to watch and, and it showed me what is possible if I can conquer these fears. But anyway, four days later, all the holes in my walls are, are plugged. Heather set some traps and I haven't seen other mice. So, or any other mice, any other, you know, a single mouse, which is fantastic. I admit I have not, actively checked the traps um I can kind of (laughs) see where some of them are but I that's not something I necessarily want to see and um but it's you know it's one of the silver linings is that it's gotten me to really clean out a lot of my gear my all my, you know, stuff from Reese's and bags and swim bags. And, um, I will admit the only food in my house is in the refrigerator at this moment, but it, it, sometimes you need something like this to get you to make some positive lifestyle changes. And I think that's what's happening. And I'm also happy to report that Tiencia, my athlete, despite her coach having a mid pre-race chat meltdown. She had a fantastic race at Ironman Florida. She finished third in her age group. And she did tell me what, and then the going got tough on that run. She imagined that she was being chased by a mouse and well, she had a pretty darn good run. So maybe that call was actually like my best coaching advice I've ever given anyone. No, probably not. But um, huge congrats to Tansia. I apologize again publicly for freaking out mid-call. I'm going to work on that exposure therapy, maybe going to a pet store and holding the mice and realizing they aren't as scary as, as I picture them in my head. But it's been a weird couple days for sure. And to make things even a little more awkward, I'm trying to segue this into, um, I guess, if you are homebound because you are afraid of a mouse-filled world – like me no i've gotten out i have gotten out but if you do live in any major u.s or canadian city you can still get your bike maintenance done without taking your bike out into the scary world and that is because of velofix so velofix is a mobile bike shop that brings the bike mechanic right to you and to celebrate their partnership with live feisty media and the iron women podcast Velofix is running a promotion where our listeners can get a major tune for the price of a minor tune, which is about a $40 savings. A major tune means the mechanic is doing a full safety check of your frame and your fork, making sure your cassette chain and components are in good condition, not worn out. The mechanic can adjust your brakes, try to get rid of any creaks that have, you've started hearing because it's been a long season of racing, and they will do a full clean lubrication and polish of your bike so just in case you have any like a coke or gel residue maybe some noon endurance stuck on your bike from your last race i know someone who has that situation this is a great time of year to get that cleaned up and you know keep that garage mouse free or or any other pests or rodents out of your out of your garage keep them away from your bike stuff get it get everything clean and give that bike some tlc So like I said earlier, Velofix serves pretty much every major city in the U.S. and Canada, and it's super easy to book services at Velofix.com. So go ahead, go on to Velofix.com, book your major tune today, and use the code FEISTY to save $40 and have a bike that is ready for you know whatever is next for the off season so that when you get back on it it's clean or for winter trainer rides or just winter training it's a great time of year to be taking care of your bike cuz presuming you have a little bit of time before your next race don't put it off putting off leads to um bigger bigger issues down the road so i mentioned this week's guest Renee Kylie at the top of the show And and like many people, Renee started triathlon as a path to a healthier lifestyle. In 2013, she was an overweight smoker, and she found herself spectating her very first triathlon. Less than a year later, she was on her own triathlon start line. And just three years after that, and more than 100 pounds lighter, she was racing triathlon as a professional. Over the past couple years, Renee has worked her way up the pro ranks and she finished fifth at Ironman Estonia this past August. Unfortunately, just two weeks after her fantastic race in Estonia, Renee was racing Ironman Copenhagen and a mid-race crash left her in the hospital with a broken collarbone and a severe concussion. We asked Renee how she's doing since her crash and talked to her about her unconventional path from a successful but unhealthy businesswoman to a professional triathlete. And we talked about some of those many challenges that she's overcome along the way. We'll have our conversation with Renee Kylie right after the break. This is Alyssa and as a triathlete, I am all about efficiency.
0: That's why I'm excited that Velofix is now a part of the Live Feisty community. Velofix is North America's largest mobile bike shop fleet, and they know that your most valuable asset is time. Velofix will meet you wherever you are at in your day so you don't miss a beat. Or if you have some time, you can hang out in the mobile bike shop and enjoy a complimentary cup of coffee to learn about the service being done. Interested? Here's how it works. Head to velofix.com or call 1-855-VELOFIX Set your appointment and the local Velofix technician will come directly to you. Book your service today using promo code FEISTY so they know you're an Iron Women listener. The first 100 listeners to book today using promo code FEISTY will receive a major tune for the price of a minor tune. Again, that's Velofix.com and promo code FEISTY to enhance your bike service
2: experience today. This is Haley. And I've spent most of my swimming career squinting at pace clocks or trying to catch a glimpse of my watch during intervals. If you're like me and love knowing your swim splits but hate finding a clock, there's a better way. Form Swim Goggles are the first premium goggles with a smart display that shows your metrics while you swim. You heard that right. Form Goggles have a see-through display in one of the eye cups so you can see your splits, pace, distance, or any other metric right in front of you. I've done a few workouts with the form swim goggles and the coolest thing is once you press start, the goggles actually know when you're swimming and when you're resting. There's no need to press another button until you finish your workout. Want to learn more? Head to formswim.com.
0: Hi Renee, welcome to the Iron Women podcast. Hi ladies. Uh, Thanks for having me. I've been really excited. Thank you. So we're talking to you today which is about 9 weeks or so um after Ironman Copenhagen where I met you and where unfortunately you had a bike crash during the race and sustained some serious injuries including a bad concussion and a broken collarbone I believe so what has the last couple months kind of been like for you
3: uh... It's been funny. I, um, I've um, i obviously had a lot of time to think about this. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it was a, a big shock. Um, it was a mechanical issue on my bike. So I think on one hand I'm really lucky that I don't remember hitting the ground and I don't remember a lot about the accident um, because sometimes I think when I've come off my bike before and sometimes I think when you remember hitting the ground and those last couple of seconds before you hit the ground, it actually is worse um, because you're a bit shaky when you get back on the bike. But, yeah, it was pretty scary. And I went through – I've been through, like, all these different stages. Like, when it first happened, I think the adrenaline's running and the first day or two you think you're okay and it's not that bad. And then for probably the first week and a half, I wasn't allowed to fly home to Australia straight away because the concussion was so bad they wanted me to stay put for 10 days or so until the swelling in my head and stuff went down. Um, But the first 10 days is really funny. Like I did not, didn't care about training, didn't miss, like didn't even think about triathlon. I just was so grateful to be alive. And then I went through a phase a couple of weeks after that, I, I came back to Australia and then I was just happy to be home and happy to be back with my family. And then I think week sort of five and six after the accident, um, I started getting back into some movement so like just walking every day and I jumped on the turbo a couple of times for some 30 minute easy spin so that was really exciting every time I got to do something new I was like yay I can walk and yay I can go for a little spin but I think the last week has actually been the toughest like really tough like I've I wouldn't say I've been depressed, but definitely in a depressive kind of state of mind. Um, the last, yeah, the last probably 10 days, just because I've sort of returned um, back to to daily training, I guess, and trying to do a session or two each day. Um, so that was week eight after the accident. And I actually have found that the most difficult um, because it's not until you start doing a little bit of exercise again that you realize how hard you must have come down and how much um of a shock to the to the body that a fall like that is um and obviously super super unfit and I just don't have that 15 year muscle memory and time in the sport to draw on so I do um decondition really quickly and lose my fitness really quickly so yeah the last week I would say has surprisingly um been the most difficult getting back into
2: training. And Renee, we're definitely going to talk to you more about where you are right now, but I I wanted to go back a little bit to, to the crash and, and just, I understand healthcare is different in different countries, but one of my biggest fears is crashing in a foreign country and ending up in the hospital and, uh, you know, I'm by myself at the race and how I, I navigate that, like how I navigate the foreign medical system and, trying to take care of myself. And, and again, this is coming from the American perspective, where our healthcare is, is a little bit different than yours. So so how did you do that? Well,
3: it was actually really surprising. I uh, was taken in an ambulance to a hospital. My my very first, my last memory is seeing that I was at the 90, like looking down at my garment and seeing I was at the 90 kilometer mark of the ride. And then uh, according to my Garmin, must have come down at about the 94-kilometer mark. Um, so I can't remember those last four kilometers. And then my next, my first memory was <laughs> waking up and the lady was trying to undo. I have like three studs in each ear, earrings. And I woke up, the lady was trying to take one of my earrings out and it's a screw back and she couldn't get it out. And so my very first memory is me saying, no, it's a screw back. You have to screw it. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I woke up in like just going into the CAT scan machine. And then I must have went unconscious again for a little bit because I can't remember that. Um, but Iron Man, so when I was the my first memory I have after coming out of a CAT scan machine was just being in a hospital like room and they were stitching me up. Um, and Iron Man had sent um a representative. Someone from Iron Man was at the sitting next to me um, at my hospital bed. So that was amazing that they'd sent someone to be with me. Um, but yeah, that I had morphine and things for the pain. And I was I, I don't even remember how long I was at the hospital. My Memory is so sketchy from the first 24, 48 hours. Um, but I must have been there for maybe. I think like five or six hours and they discharged me and I didn't think anything of that um, and I actually got a cab home. They put me in a cab and I got a cab back to my hotel and I was obviously at the race alone and I don't even really remember much from getting back from the to the hotel or anything. So when I remember when I, le- when I left the hospital and they were putting me in the cab, I said to someone, oh, where do I pay the bill? And they said, oh, there is no bill. There's no hospital bill, like no hospital charges here. And I was confused. And then anyway, I got in the taxi and I said to the taxi driver, they didn't charge me. I don't understand. Like I didn't have to pay a bill. And he said, no, medical's all free in Denmark. And I was like, what do you mean it's free? And he said, yeah, all hospital and all um, doctors is completely free. You only pay for like the medications and things that you need. And I was like, wow. Anyway, I remember having that conversation um, on the way back to the hotel. But, yeah, so I didn't have any hospital charges. But I, when I got back to Australia, I mean, the one scary thing about that whole scenario, fantastic, I didn't have any bill to pay. But when I got back to Australia and saw my sports doctor in Australia and I had some post-concussion tests and she was checking my po- collarbone and things, and when I told her, um, that I'd been discharged from the hospital, she nearly died. She just said, went white. She's just like, I, what do you mean they discharge you from the hospital? And I said, oh, I got a taxi home that night from, and she was looking at the photos and reading the doctor's report about my concussion. And she just said, look, I don't want to frighten you now because it doesn't matter. She said, but it's important that you know um, if you if anyone else has ever in this situation or anything like this happens again. She said the biggest concern with um, a concussion that long especially um, is internal bleeding. And she just said basically they sent you home and if you had have started bleeding or your brain had started swelling or something during the night, no one would have found you. You were alone. No one would have found you. So that frightened me. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess I had heaps of support. Like and Melissa was one, had so many messages and things the next day, people offering to come and help me pack and offering to come and be with me, etc., etc., which was just amazing. The power of social media sometimes is awesome. Um, so, yeah, I was lucky in the sense that I felt looked after at the hospital and Iron Man sent that representative to come and, and be with me at the hospital and things. But I guess on the other hand, too, yeah, it's quite a, a bit of a dangerous situation, me being alone that night. And it's tough because it's,
0: you know, it's your job, right? And we can't expect, uh, yeah. you know, most of us cannot afford or have the luxury of having someone always come with us for the, you know, even just the safety perspective. So definitely eye opening to hear your story and hopefully no one else has to really navigate that, but I think it's good to share the story. So thank you for doing that. You came to Copenhagen about three weeks, I believe after racing Ironman, um, in Estonia. Where you had kind of this breakthrough of a day. You were fifth place there in nine hours and eleven minutes, which, you know, for fifth place to the nine eleven is is crazy <laughs> these days. The women are racing so fast. You kind of mentioned those first weeks after were kind of a, a more positive time, if anything, because you were just grateful to be, you know, alive and still able to be, you know, at least getting home and things like that. But what was it like when it set in that you had come off of this really breakthrough race? And then went from that high to this low. Yeah, it's been
3: awful. <laughs> um, look, uh, I'm a positive person. I don't like to be negative and feel sorry for myself. Uh, definitely. And I am I really pride myself on trying to keep perspective and maintain perspective all the time. I think that's really, really important. Um, but. Yeah, that's why last week, I mean, I posted on my social media saying I was feeling a bit flat and um, it took me a couple of days to work up the courage to even do that and share that um, because because I do pride myself on being positive and not and, and keeping things in perspective. Like at the end of the day, I, I still have all my limbs and I still have a pretty good life and I get to do what I want to do and what I love doing. So in the scheme of things, it's not really that bad. Um, but I guess, yeah, that, that was why I was so down last week. Um, like I did mention before, I don't have a long history in the sport. So for me, particularly swimming and running, you know, it literally only takes me a couple of weeks off either of those. And I go backwards at twice the rate. Um, so yeah, it was. It was awful, you know, and I think it came at the most shitty timing with Kona being on as well (laughs) Um, and all the social media posts and everyone being at Kona, it probably made my mindset a little bit. I mean, it's very inspiring and motivating, of course, but the particular timing was a little bit sad for me as well. Just to think that, yeah, Kona next year is definitely a goal and right now I just feel a gazillion miles away from that goal. And after Talon, I felt like it was right there, like it was just a couple of minutes away, like just a tiny bit of improvement away and I would be there. Yeah, and right now it just it feels a very long, long way away. But I know that I will get my fitness back and I know I'll get fit again and I, I'm just trying to like tick each, each session off every day and not think about it too much at the moment.
2: Renee, are you doing anything specific in your training right now? Or is there anyone that you're leaning on to help you kind of get through this time? I know I know I'm asking you this question when you're in the midst of it, but has anything gotten a little bit better over the last week? I mean, Kona's gone. Probably, you (laughs) know, it's over. Like, we'll forget what happened, you know, within like another week or two anyway, to be perfectly honest. And so, you know, I I get that part, but are there any tactics that you've found to help you get on, you know, that, that first turbo ride that you mentioned or get in the pool again for the first time and be kind to yourself as you're coming back?
3: Yeah, I, one thing particularly is friends. Um, I have a really close group of friends um, and a lot of them are in the sport, so they completely understand. So I have found that I've leaned on um, my good friends and they've been awesome in the last week or two. And I would say it was a 10-day patch that was really, really like really down and I was just struggling to get out the door and get training and just getting out of the pool after swimming two kilometres on a cycle 20 minutes, 20 seconds per hundred slower than what I'm usually swimming on. And I would just get out and be like, what is the point of even doing like two? I just cannot see the forest through the trees at the moment. Um, But it's just funny. You've just got to – and like my friends keep saying to me, you know, don't think about the big picture too much at the moment. Like right now you've just got to focus on ticking one session off at a time and not thinking about it, not looking at the numbers, not looking at the outcomes, just literally getting it done. So I've really focused on that in the last few days. And to be honest with you, like we all know because we all end up getting fitter and we get through these patches the last probably two or three days. Thing, I can feel myself starting to just get that little bit fitter. You know, the the cycle in the, in the pools come down five seconds in the last few days. Um, I've done just this morning, I did my longest race. I ran for an hour easy and that's the longest run that I've done in eight and a half weeks. Um, so, yeah, just as those little positive moments and those little tiny wins in the last couple of days especially, it's amazing how how quickly it turns your mindset around. And Renee, I believe, and you can correct me here if I'm wrong, but
0: um, I think that when you returned home, that kind of allowed you um, some more time to almost work like full-time again, maybe at Innovate, which is a mortgage broker firm that you co-founded. And so I also believe that it was just like a short time ago, you had negotiated a way to like kind of pulled back a little bit from there to be able to race and train more and pursue triathlon. So can you tell us more about, you know, this other job, this other side of you? And do you think that that has been a positive outlet for you to have during this time? If I'm right, (laughs) I I might be really
3: far off. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't gone back to work (laughs) and that's probably, um, actually, I, although that you're wrong on that point, you've actually made me think that. In times like this, it probably would have been nice. It would be nice to have um, that outlet and that and something else to sort of focus on in a period like this. Um, I'm still a director. That that business, my business partner and I co-founded that business when we were 24, so about 12 years ago. Um, and that was my obsession and, and consumed most of my life for sort of before I found triathlon. So, yeah, I did negotiate with my, we came to an agreement with uh, my business partner and I in January, 2018. So it's about 18 months ago now that I could finish up, um, full time and I could, uh, sorry, I could finish up work and pursue triathlon full time. So we basically had an agreement that I could take four years out of the business um, and I don't mind sharing these details but basically that's how I fund myself with triathlon. I sell down some of my shares in the in the business every six or 12 months to fund this triathlon journey. Um, so, yeah, I did when I came back to Melbourne I did I did drop into the office because obviously I'm still a director and you know most of our staff, we have 25 staff in that business and most of them have been around for a very long time so they're kind of like family. So when I did come back to Australia, I stayed at Melbourne for a week or so and I did get in there to see all the guys and it was really, really nice to see them all. But it definitely um, because of what I was experiencing at that time and being injured and a bit sad and things I did have a moment of, Oh my God, what am I doing in this triathlon business? Like why don't I come back to the business? Like, look how successful it is. And sure. I don't remember it being as hard as this triathlon thing is. Um, but no, I don't, um, I don't work full time and I have tried to focus while I've been injured just on my you know, personal, my social media and my per- updating my website. I've tried to put a lot of energy energy into those sorts of things to keep myself distracted. But it certainly um, would be nice sometimes, I think, to have the distraction of work.
2: Renee, you've alluded to your background in the sport and how it, it isn't a very long background and it's, it's kind of unique. So what people who just know of your recent triathlon accolades probably don't know is that As recently as six years ago, you weighed 138 kilograms or a little over 300 pounds. You were smoking almost a pack a day and you weren't really exercising much at all. Then in 2013, you watched a triathlon and that inspired you to set a goal to do a triathlon. So what was it about watching that race that just made you want to be part of that?
3: Um, I went to visit some friends up in – I was living in Melbourne at the time and, yeah, severely overweight and smoking but very successful in my, my corporate life and definitely obsessed and spending way too much time in that aspect. And my friend – I went up to visit my friends in Queensland and when I got up there they said, oh, our friend of a friend is racing this, like, Noosa Triathlon on tomorrow – Would are you okay, like, to come with us and watch? Like, we won't stay for long or we'll just stay a couple of hours and watch her and then it's done. And I didn't know at the time even what a triathlon was, but I'd grown up, like, typical Aussie kid, like, playing sport and stuff when I grew up, so I'd always love sports. So I said, yeah, no, that would be awesome. So the Noosa Triathlon, which is, like, the biggest triathlon in the Southern Hemisphere, and I remember we went and watched their friend and I was just sitting, standing on the barrier uh, where the bikes come in just before T2 and I was just standing there watching and I remember just looking around and seeing and watching all the bikes come in and just thinking, wow, there's like all these people of all different shapes and sizes. And I still I didn't really understand what triathlon was and age group and pro and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I just thought, yeah, everyone looks so happy and just the atmosphere of the event. Everyone was just so happy and looked so happy and healthy and like they were having a great time and I just remember thinking, wow, like I swam a little bit like when I was growing up and everyone can run and surely it's not that hard to learn how to to ride a bike. And maybe like in 12 months time, like I could do this, this Olympic distance triathlon in 12 months. So it was just something inside of me at that moment that yeah, I had a strong desire. Um, I don't know why, because if you saw the state that, you know, like my state of health at that period, at that time, you would have thought there's no way, like I would even think like that, but something ignited in me that day. And, um, I didn't do anything about it. I didn't tell anyone and I didn't do anything about it. Um, for another month, um, I got back to Australia and, celebrated Christmas and drinking time of year and all that kind of jazz and then on I remember it was January 2nd 2014 I just got up and went into a bike shop and bought like a $600 road bike with the flat pedals Um, and that's where the journey began. I just for the first two or three months I like I obviously knew that I was overweight And I was too embarrassed and too scared to join a triathlon club just because I was too embarrassed about what I looked like and because I couldn't do any any of the three disciplines. Um, So, yeah, I just bought a a road bike and um, just started doing little swims and little rides and little runs by myself. And then in March 2014, I did my first sprint distance try. And so
0: Renee, I want to kind of get specific here because I, I want people to really wrap their head, you know, when, when you say, you know, a couple things for you, for the goal setting process, I think it's really, you know, what you said that, you know, you made that goal in November, then you had November, December, you kind of took celebrate the holidays, but you had that goal and then it was the fully committing come January where it sounds like your tangible thing was like walking into the bike shop, right? Can you take people through, I think a lot of times with triathletes, we set like these goals, right? And we say, I want to do that. I want to do, you know, and it's the tangible things that kind of elude people sometimes. So definitely sounds like buying that bike was something for you, but can you also take people through what a little ride and a little run kind of look like? (laughs) like? You know, yeah. was this a walk run for five minutes, 10 minutes, you know, or was, were you like able to go jog for 20 minutes out the door? Like what really were we looking at at that point?
3: Um, I remember with the bike, um, I probably only did like one or two rides a week for the first month. I would say my big focus, although I wasn't an athlete back then I'd grown up, um, watching a lot of sport and playing sport at more basketball at a decently high level up until I was about 16. So I kind of knew like what you had to do to get fit. And I knew the basics involved in exercise. So at that time I knew that I shouldn't be running a lot because I was so heavy. Um, so I was still 105 kilos then and still smoking. So for me, I thought, I probably should swim as much as I can um, because that's exercise and that will help get my weight down and it's not going to impact on my body as much. So I wish I had, I keep saying this, I wish I had kept some sort of diary of the training and or the exercise I did in those first few months because I really honestly can't remember the minor details but I do remember going to the pool and literally we're talking like, I swam one lap and then stopped. And I I get, I'm guessing that those first few swims just would have been like five and five laps. And then the next one might've been seven or eight laps and then 10 laps. It was, yeah, very, very minimal in those early days. Cause A, I was a heavy smoker. So yeah, the lung capacity and the fitness definitely wasn't there. And B, I hadn't swum since I I think like at the end of primary school. By the, at the end of primary school, would have been the last time I had a swim, and I went on those couple of rides, just like short distance, ten kilometres at first, and then maybe fifteen kilometres the next time, and twenty kilometres the next time. Um, and I only ran with running. I do remember I. I'm the sort of person like I wouldn't have walked. I don't remember walk running like and I did it all on a treadmill at a gym because I was too embarrassed about what I looked like to run outside. It just would have been short runs, I would say, like 15 minutes, really, really slow, but running the whole time on the treadmill and then maybe, you know, 15 minutes again and then 20 minutes. But I just did things like that. I, I remember I just focused on doing one as long as I got out the door and did something each day and most of that would have been probably swimming and running for the, for, during the week. And then maybe a one or two bike rides on the weekend. And I did that for three months. I think it was, I joined the a local triathlon club it might've been at the end of February or the very start of March, but I definitely had, I had lost maybe 15, close to 15 kilos in that first um, sort of three months before I joined the tri club and then I was a little bit more confident because I was a bit smaller and I wasn't as self-conscious.
2: Renee, you mentioned that that March 2014, first sprint triathlon. And and then in August of that same year, you went on to race your first Olympic. In November, you finished the NUSA Triathlon. So it was one year after you had set that goal, you were down... 35 kilograms which is close to 80 pounds did you get a chance to take a you know a look back to reflect at the end of that first year on just how far you had come
3: yeah at the time in November when I did that Olympic distance in Noosa it was a we celebrated for like three days (laughs) that we finished that race um it was a very very fun time I didn't I didn't reflect too, too much on the, what had been, but I was certainly very, very happy to have accomplished that goal. And I just had a massive fire burning inside of me to get better. Like when I did the Noosa triathlon, when I did that very first sprint triathlon in the March, I came 252nd female in that race. My placing was 252nd out of maybe 300 odd females. And I walked most of the run and then in November so what's that like six months later and I did that Noosa triathlon I think there was about 260 girls in my age group and I came like 25th so yeah I had a massive yes that was a big celebration of completing that and taking that goal off but also yeah, I had, I've just fallen in love with a sport in that time and gotten so much fitter and obviously found a huge passion and something that I loved. So I had a huge fire burning too, to, um, to get better as well.
0: And so Renee, I'm going to try and take our listeners through the timeline that comes next in your triathlon career. (laughs) So, um, February of 2015, you then finished your first 70.3 and you were eighth in your age group. That July, you went back to the race um, where you raced your first Olympic. You raced a two-hour, 17-minute Olympic, which is quite speedy, and you finished third overall there. Then in August, I believe you won the amateur race at Ironman Japan, um, going to Kona that year in 2015. So this all, you know, like once it really took off, like obviously it took (laughs) off for you, right? So at what point, though, in the journey did it – then switch from, you know, enjoying it and just, you know, having this passion for for movement and, and you know, enjoying being healthy again to I actually want to see, like, how good I can be <laughs> and maybe race as a professional
3: in this. You've done your research really well. <laughs> I would say in February 2015 when I did my first half Ironman, that would have been the race where I did. I think it was five, roughly five hours 501 or 5:01 or something. I did in that half Ironman, and I think it was after that race that I went, well, oh, maybe like I could be a good age grouper. Maybe I could be. It the yeah, it definitely changed from. Oh, this is fun and you hang out and you like social, go for coffees when you're riding. I get to change from a fun like friendly like social thing to or like maybe if I train really hard I could be an elite age grouper like maybe on the podium at most of my races um I had no like pro world hadn't even crossed my mind at all like i no no not at any point at that time and then um yeah, like you said, I did Japan, Ironman Japan in August and won my age group there. But I'd be lying if I said I went into that race not wanting to win it. <laughs> I think everyone says, oh, it's your first Ironman, like don't have any expectations, but I'm super competitive and I definitely went went, went there with the thought intention of trying to win. Um, and then Kona after that, I still um, did, I had a terrible race. Kona was only six weeks after that Ironman and I still wasn't even thinking pro. And then 2016 season came around and I started getting stronger and stronger in my build-up towards Port, Ironman Australia. My goal race was Ironman Australia in May in 2016 to try and qualify for Kona again. And it was during that build-up that I started just getting really strong. Like I was riding with most of the, the guys in our club and getting better and better. And a few people had sort of said to me, oh, you should think about racing pro. But I brushed them off all the time. I was like, I can't, you know, I've only been doing this sport for two years. I can't compete with professional women and I'm too old, like, to go pro. And I just laugh them off. And then... At Ironman Australia, I came third in my age group that year, but we had a really strong age group. We probably there's like five girls in that race in my age group that were really strong. I think we were all under 10, 30. Anyway, I came third and um, we are at the presentations the day after the race and Beth McKenzie actually won the pro race that year. Anyway, she got up and said in her um, presentation speech, it was such a funny moment. Like we all have these moments in life that just change the, the direction of our lives. She was up there and I was drinking and having a great time and whatever, for some reason I stopped and started listening to her speech. And she said something along the lines of, you know, I've been doing this sport for X amount of years and raced as an age grouper. And if someone had a told me, you know, like six years ago that I'd be racing, doing this sport full-time as a professional athlete and that I would have won and I would be winning my first Ironman at the age of 38, I would have said that were crazy. Something along those lines, she said. And I just remember having a huge moment. I literally feel like the whole room just stopped and it was just me listening to her in that room. And I just sat there and thought, oh my God, like she's like 38 and I think I was 33 at the time, 38 and she's just like winning an Ironman now and she's only started the sport then and yeah, just got my mind ticking over and that that was the, the first moment that I'd given it any real consideration and actually thought that it might be possible. So I went home after that race and just obviously got to go back to work and I was like in the shower one morning and I just couldn't stop thinking about it like just could not stop thinking about could I go pro like could I do this every single day and then thinking in my head I haven't even got any results to justify it really but I had this huge self-belief I just thought gosh I've been riding a time trial bike for like 12 months and you know I'm one of the best writers in the, in the age group world, and all these things were ticking over in my head. And could I do this? And after about two days, I thought, yeah, this is what I want to do. And I felt really sad to have to be going to the office, and not sad because I hated work, but yeah, just sad because. Um, I'd obviously made a decision in my mind that I wanted to pursue doing this triathlon thing full time. So, yeah, I spoke to my business partner. I took him out for breakfast one morning and he wouldn't have been expecting it. And I just said to him, this is what I want to do and if I do this then I need to cut back work. I can't compete with these girls, like, working full time. I need um, to cut back work a couple of days a week. And, yeah, we had a couple of meetings and over a week or two we we decided we could do it and I still hadn't told anyone else not my coach no one so after I got the go-ahead from him yeah then I um I told everyone that that's what my my goal was for the next six months
2: was anyone surprised did you get any like weird pushback did anyone tell you no that's a terrible idea or was everyone supportive Actually,
3: no, um, I didn't. And I think the main reason, I think maybe some people wanted to say, oh, my God, why are you doing this? But I think because I was maintain, like, staying, like, I was going to continue to work three days a week, I think that probably made most people feel like, oh, that's okay because if it doesn't work out, she's still working type thing. I think I got more, not pushback, but more uncertainty from people when I made the decision in January eighteen to stop work altogether I think I got a few or are you sure about this type responses
2: well Renee it you now do speaking engagements as well which if anyone has been listening for the past 30 minutes including myself we can see why you do so well in your speaking you're a very good speaker and your story is incredible but when you talk about your journey with the goal of inspiring others to to get healthy and maybe to take some risks uh, speaking about health in particular like what do you think are the biggest barriers to people to starting that journey to getting healthy
3: I think probably not being honest with ourselves you know like even when I think back to the state that I, that I was in complete denial about the state of health I was in and how big I was so I I think yeah one of the biggest barriers is the fact that we're just not honest with ourselves and look I've got some Fairly opinionated views on on things when it comes to health. Now, um, I see things in the media where, trying to find the right way to say this, it's celebrated or we're celebrating saying it's okay um, to be a size twenty or a size twenty-four, for example. And and this is just me being completely honest, and I and I feel like I have the right to say this because I actually have been that big. Um, and these things in the media say, you know, it's okay, it's okay to be bigger, and we should celebrate all body types and wish self love and all of that. And of course, that's all very very important. We all, we have to love ourselves and all those types of things. But I don't believe this whole. Um, you can be, you know, overweight or size twenty four, whatever, and happy, and doesn't matter about your size because it does matter. Um, we're not, we're not designed to carry all this extra weight around. That's just not the way we were made. Made, and I think, yeah, I think that's one reason why perhaps we're not honest with ourselves um, is because we're in a bit of a society at the moment that is telling us to celebrate our size and things no matter what size we are. Um, So I think, yeah, being honest with ourselves is one of the biggest barriers to getting started and also that it feels too too difficult um, when you're in a pretty bad state of health and severely overweight it just feels like you've just got this monumental task ahead of you. So it just seems like it's all too hard. And it's very easy not to get started, I think.
0: And Renee, kind of along those lines, many of us in sport have family and friends that we would love to see be healthier. So what do we say to them? Is there anything we can say, can, or, you know, was there anything anyone could have said to you to help you, kind of get started in that time period where it would have been super difficult?
3: I would love to say yes, but I think the reality is no. I said to my parents after I lost weight, and even now I joke with my parents when I go home and say, oh my God, why didn't you tell me I was so big? And they just look at me like my dad says to me, Renee, you would have like chopped our hands off if we had have said something like that to you. So, and they said that, you know, I do remember when I was bigger like them, not saying it straight out, but hinting at it a couple of times, like over the years. And of course I was super defensive and brushed them off. And I always had an excuse or something. So I'm a big believer in, I think everybody has to reach their rock bottom. And I think, um, the motivation to change has to hundred percent come from within. It's the same as you know, someone addicted to drugs or alcohol or whatever, like we can all tell them that they've got a problem and they need help and we're here for them and we'll help them. But it's not until that person puts their hand up and says, hey, I need help or, hey, I'm ready to change. That's the only time that change is going to happen, I, I think. Um, then that's not to say that you shouldn't encourage people or shouldn't perhaps have a serious chat to someone if you are concerned about them. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it has to come from that person.
2: Renee, you mentioned joining the Tri Club. So I could imagine that your your social circle probably changed as your lifestyle changed. So how did you navigate like changing friends, adding friends, losing friends during the whole journey to a healthier lifestyle? Did that happen?
3: Yeah, it happened like hugely. And I think a lot of my... Well, I don't think I had a huge circle of friends when I was overweight and that's, I'm quite an outgoing social sort of person, a social introvert, I like to call myself, but back when I was, I was so obsessive and spending so much time at work, um, which at my at the time I told myself was just because I was trying to build the business and I was this awesome corporate businesswoman who worked 60, 70 hours a week. But the reality is I was just unhappy and didn't have anything else in my life, so I was just engulfing myself in work. But I, as, a, as a consequence of that, I, I didn't actually have that many friends. Most of my friends were um, people I worked with and knew through work, but I didn't have a huge social circle at that time. And then, yeah, triathlon, it's just, yeah, it's making me smile just thinking about it. Like when you join a tri club, you just, it's just awesome, this sport. Like it is really just awesome. Um, it becomes a lifestyle and you meet people, like you are guaranteed in a triathlon club to meet, there's guaranteed to be one or two people within the club that are at the same level as you um so you automatically like buddy up with them I'm still friends like with one of the girls I met in 2014 we were both like newbies and did this like beginner course um yeah and I'm still friends with her and um yeah I've all of my friendship circle at the moment are, are pretty much I, people I've met in triathlon over the years um so it's completely changed my social circle but I think that's also been a huge, is also a big positive um, in maintaining, keeping the weight off and staying in the sport. Yeah, because you're surrounded by people that live the same lifestyle as you.
2: And when you make such a a big physical change, does that change, you know, how you are mentally and emotionally as well? I think uh, for me personally, I don't think
3: it's changed me massively like the way I think and mentally I think I've always had the same qualities um you know like very mentally strong very competitive hard worker like I think all those qualities have remained the same and I wouldn't say like people say to me now like oh you've got to be really mentally strong and resilient in to be a pro and deal with the setbacks and things and have you learned to be like that and the truth is I haven't because I had all that you know, starting a business is really, really tough. Um, some of the problems and the stresses that you have in starting a, a business are, yeah, phenomenal. And so I feel like I've already kind of built up all those qualities um, in my prior life. So, no, for me I feel like I'm, yeah, a, a lot of those those same qualities and stuff I use for triathlon. So I don't think it's changed my mindset or anything too much.
0: And Renee, we want to go back to triathlon here for our (laughs) last question for you. Um, so you train with the Hills district, which is a squad that has some other athletes that iron women has chatted with. Most notably our listeners will probably be thinking of, um, Sarah Crowley, who was third at the Ironman world championships this last weekend. And you know, if people are following your squad, it seems like you guys definitely have a recipe for success and your story, you know, is no different. And we know more good stuff is to come from you. So what do you think it is that's making your squad so special?
3: Um, I think it's this, just the fact that we are face to face and it's the squad environment. I know for me, I I know everybody is different and some people, thrive uh, training on their own and doing their own thing and they don't actually like a squad environment. But I think all the people within our squad are people that thrive in a squad environment. I absolutely 100% can say I would not be the athlete I, well, not am today, not the athlete I was a couple of months ago (laughs) Um, if it wasn't for that squad environment. Like when we're in Brisbane, we're here for six or seven months of the year. Cam is there every day. He's there on full the pool deck every morning um, and he's, you know, we all do different sessions during the day, but I would see Cam every day if not sometimes twice a day.
2: And this and, is Cam Watt, your coach, yes, right?
3: Yes, yep, Cam Watt, sorry. Um, yeah, and you just get more out of yourself. Like when you're in that squat environment, you're, there's always someone there um, better than you to push you on those days that you're you're tired or you, you're having a shitty day or whatever it is, like the squad is there to lift you up and the squad is there to push you. And on top of that, having Cam there, for whatever reason, I'm just the type of personality that I can always find another level or another level of performance when um, there's someone there um, pushing me and whether that's Cam or whether that's the squad. So I think, yeah, I just, I absolutely love our squad. It's just awesome, like, getting up every day and being able to train with people and having Cam around all the time to answer questions. He's always got stories or, because he used to race pro himself and he's worked and been mentored by Brett for a long time, so he's always got, like, stories from 20 years ago or 15 years ago that he'll just tell us at the most random times that are super inspiring and motivating so, yeah, I, I really just think it's this that squad environment and always um, having people better than you. Like when I first started with the Hills District in Cam, it was a bit over 12 months ago, I think it was July last year, like I was just getting smashed every session. Like I would go to swimming and just get smashed and I was like the slowest in the lane and just every single session I was just getting my bike kicked on the bike, getting lapped on the track. Um, and for some people, I think that would be very demotivating and they would really struggle with that. But for me, it wasn't, it was, it's been super motivating and now I'm not the slowest in the pool and now I'm not the worst bike rider and now I'm not the worst runner. Um, so it's without even racing, um, it's very inspiring to come to training every day and see that you're making progress. And sometimes I think, okay, like p- particularly using like Sarah as an example or Sky as an example, Sky Moench. Um, you know, if I'm not that far behind Sarah or I'm not that far behind Sky, then I'm not that far behind the best in the world. Um, so that's very, very inspiring to go to to work every day and, and see that progress.
2: Well, Renee, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your story. And I, I think I speak for all of us when it, it – we we – wish you the best in your recovery but you do seem like someone who can overcome any challenge and and you're really good at celebrating all those little milestones along the way so we will you know keep in touch during your recovery and hopefully see you back stronger than ever on the race course sooner than we could all probably believe thank you so much for having me on and i also
3: just wanted to say Thank you to you guys for everything that you do for, um, for obviously women in our sport. I just think it's amazing.
2: The Iron Woman podcast is proud to be supported by Zelio skincare. Zelio's products are designed and tested by champion triathletes like myself. I know I can count on their high quality and long lasting ingredients to stand the test of the hottest, sweatiest days when I'm racing and training. Have the peace of mind to perform at your best without worrying about your skin and hair products.
0: The products you won't want to train or compete without include Sun Barrier SPF 45, Betwixt All Natural Shammy Cream, Swim and Sport Shower Products, and
2: Body Lotion. You can get 20% off at TeamZelios.com by using the code IRONWOMEN. Yep, you heard it right. Get 20%
0: off your Zelios order with the code IRONWOMEN at TeamZelios.com.
2: Big thank you to Renee Kylie for coming on this show. I always find it so fascinating the different paths everyone takes to, to professional triathlon. So I'm really thankful that she shared her story. And I also hope that she recovers well. I mean, that sounds like a really scary crash and something you don't wish on anyone. So I I wish her the best in her recovery. And I hope that we get to see her back on a start line soon um recover well Renee we're all pulling for you again uh Alyssa Gadeski my co-host she'll be back next week after her six-day stage race and she'll be there here to tell us all about everything that went down in southwest Texas at the Trans Pecos Ultra and I'm excited to hear about that in the meantime, if anyone wants to join our Patreon community, the website is patreon.com forward slash livefeisty. A small donation goes a long way in helping us continue to bring you great interviews each and every week. And we do say a big, big thank you to everyone who is already a member of that community. You help us in so many different ways and really help motivate us to continue to bring you great content. So thank you to those people. And again, if you have questions specifically about Alyssa's race, definitely write into our mailbag, Podcast at gmail.com or about anything else. And thank you again for listening. And I will
1: talk to everyone next week. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe, like and comment on iTunes. My favorite podcast hosts are Alyssa Gadesky and Haley Chura. My favorite editor is Aaron Hamilton. The Iron Women Podcast is a live feisty media production.